stories are the software of our lives. We as the humans, the hardware, need an upgrade of our spiritual software, our stories, our wisdom more than ever. Each of these episodes will be like a performance psychologist, philosopher, religious professor, and a monk walked into a bar and had a conversation. It's just me on this podcast because that's the weird conversation that's happening in my brain. I'll be drawing from other wisdom traditions, but each episode will be drawing from one main tradition, the Bible. I'll be drawing from 40 stories. And as I look at these 40 stories, I'll be distilling it down so that you can find the wisdom you need to help upgrade your story wherever you find yourself. The polycontemplative approach is not dedicated to any belief system or ideology. It's an invitation for all of us to pay attention to wisdom that's been passed down our way for thousands of years and learn from it in a new, fresh way today. Welcome to PC8. A wild story for me is uh, when I heard, I think it was a Radiolab podcast, Mel Blanc, the voice of so many of the cartoons that I grew up with. You may not remember them, but Bugs Bunny and Tweety Bird. This this one guy did so many of the voices. And he was in a car wreck. He's been in a car wreck, and he's now in a coma. It's been a couple weeks, and he's not responsive. And one of his neurologists has the idea to refer to him as one of the voices he did. He did the voice of Bugs Bunny. And so he referred to him as Bugs Bunny. And Mel Blanc, who's been unresponsive in a coma for a couple of weeks, responded back with one of Bugs Bunny's signature phrases. What's up, Doc? This is a wild story to me. I mean, the neurologist even used other voices or other names of characters that he was the voice for. And Mel Blanc responded. This is a wild story to me because what about his conscious brain wasn't responding to his name, but did respond to these characters? See, we, we can't fully define human consciousness. We don't know how to explain it. And one of the beautiful realities that we've covered in different ways through this project is that your identity is more than certain specific markers, your gender, your race, your creed, but it's also more than your name. Your identity is more than your given name. Your identity is more than uh, your thoughts, how you think about yourself or, or the thoughts that you're having or even your memories because even as people have dementia, they still have a personhood. See, when you look at the way that people try to understand who they are or explore who they are, you often see these two reactive ditches. One, they try to assert their, themselves. They're trying to push that out. They're trying to say, well, I just got to be authentic. And oftentimes, as my friend Brett pointed out in a conversation this week, Brett uh, had said authenticity can so often be reactive. And I love that because we're, we're looking for something real, but we're, we're overdoing that. So we looked at this in PC7. You can listen to that and, and learn about proving. Or so often, we're hiding from our identity. And I see that in that a, a real cynicism in our in our society today as people say it's all an illusion what if we could understand that yes we share so much in common with our human nature that the, the tests that we face that we talked about in episode seven the common ancestry that we have that over evolutionary history that we have these ambitions and dreams and desires and fears and as consciousness is developed there are so many similarities but while we do share so much in similarity in human nature, we are so different in personhood that you have your genetics and your genetics have been through your experiences and certain switches have been turning on and off and you're the unique combination of nature and nurture that is you. The unique combination of what is your, your brain and your mind and your psych, psychology, your physiology, all of these things that wrap up and 
and make you you, that you have your personality and that your personality was mostly formed pre-verbal and oftentimes the distinguishing characteristics of that personality can be defense mechanisms just because you felt vulnerable in your identity as before you could even express words and you learned how to behave in such a way that it made you you. How do we figure out who we are? How, how does everything get stripped away? How do we touch the essence of our identity? You know, throughout human history, the ancient stories have thought about our beingness, our isness as the core reality of our lives. You see these stories playing out in different ways and they're telling us this and they're giving us this wisdom and, and we have forgotten that. And one of the stories that I think takes us through a journey or a progression that builds on everything we've covered up to this point, that, that can help us answer this question, how do we figure out who we are, is a story of two brothers, two brothers named Jacob and Esau. Now, the story could be about two sisters. Again, this is the time that they lived in. I don't want to have to make that comment a ton through today's episode because this episode has got that stuff in it. It's just acknowledging that uh, throughout evolutionary history, there's a lot of mess there, and we're not exactly past that mess because as humans, we still get insecure and we still grab after from others. A scarcity mindset causes us to do harm to others as we try to get what's ours. And that's what's happening in this story. In fact, the way that it starts off or the way that I want to introduce it to you is the mom becomes aware of two of her her two children fighting in her womb. Again, the point of these stories is not to transfer scientific knowledge. That's not what they're trying to do. Instead, you got to think about like all the times that people would have sat around the fire and asked questions about who am I and, 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 and they wouldn't have worded it that way, but as they're looking to figure out who they are and as they cooperate with even their dreams, the dreams that they're having, because they put a lot of significance on their dreams and, and, the, and the way that they would have done things to explore and expand into the subconscious and the unconscious because they would have done that. You have these rites and rituals that are happening throughout human history that are helping people explore who they are. And so they have these experiences like we've looked at in some of these other episodes and they're like, okay, I'm trying to make sense of this. What's going on? And I think this story would have been one of those stories that would have been told enough times that you can see the way that it was shaped and crafted, that it has so much to it. This story would have been one of those stories told to help people understand that and how to make sense of it and how to figure out who they are. I think the story would often been told too as a as a warning, uh, a, a warning to help people understand how quickly you can lose your way. I think it would have often been told also as a correction, a corrective story that would help people understand when it was all kind of follow falling apart, what to do. So Jacob and Esau. Are at war in the womb. And as the birth is happening, the way it's recorded is that Esau's born first, but Jacob is grabbing after the heel of Esau. So he's grabbing after his heel. It's like, no, no, I want to be first. I got to get this. And the reason this would have had a significance in out throughout human history is because the firstborn, that was the preferred position. You had more responsibility, but you had more resources. You can think about it this way. You were the word would be more blessed. You were blessed. You had a greater capacity 
It was something that you would have desired if you could choose this. Now, most of human history, the way that they would have related to the gods, the deities, God, the sacred, is is not um, a warring against because I wasn't the firstborn. It would have been a surrender to the will of the gods or the almighty. It's like, okay, this is what happened. And that's what's so interesting about this story because it's like Jacob is this first character in, in human history that I know of where it's recorded this way that there's this agency that he feels, you know? And again, I know I'm putting a lot on this moment, but that's the idea. It's, it's, it's the narrative and what it evokes. And Jacob is like, man, I got to get mine. I gotta, I'm going to be firstborn. You know, how does a baby have consciousness in a woman? Stop. <laughs> so Jacob is grabbing after Esau. Now, what do they do? They name him heel grabber. Heel grabber, which had a meaning of deception. He's a deceiver. He's grabbing after the heel. He's trying to get what's his. And you see this, this theme of, of grasping and grabbing throughout Jacob's life. In fact, uh, we see that Jacob and Esau are compared. Esau's like alpha male. He goes out and he hunts. He's, he's hairy. Jacob uses his mind. He's cunning. He's strategic. Esau is dad's favorite. Jacob is mom's favorite. You know, all families have their issues. We want to be healthy and on a healthy trajectory. But in this story, you see the reality of, you know, eavesdropping, listening in and not having direct conversations and, and even, and we'll get to this in a minute, some racism and just crazy stuff. So Esau and Jacob don't really have good models for them to help work out their conflict and make peace with their inner psychological struggles, how to grow and develop. Instead, this story plays out messy. So Esau and Jacob clearly don't get it worked out because one day Esau is out hunting and he comes back and he's hungry. He doesn't, he didn't catch anything. And Jacob has some stew. Now, the story records lentil stew. That doesn't sound like too delicious or sexy of a meal to me, but that was the times, culinarily speaking. We've got a lot more repertoire in our tasting abilities now in our, in our cooking choices. But that's what was going on in the story. Esau comes back hungry, and Jacob made something delicious, and he wants it. And Jacob says, I'll give it to you, but you got to give me the birthright. you got to give me what's yours for being born first. I want you to transfer that blessing to me. Now, even in all the craziness here, you have... Uh, a weight, almost a mystical importance on the power of words. I mean, you see that. We looked in episode one at these beginning moments, and it's recorded in the poem that the sacred God spoke and created. And the words that we speak, they do have so much power. How we use our words are an overflow of what's happening in our minds. And so all this is connected clearly. And even ancient people understood that in the way that they would honor their word, even in the midst of the backstabbing and the crazy. And so what Esau says to Jacob is, yeah, I'll give it to you. Okay, give me this, give me this soup. I want to eat that soup. I'm hungry. Of course, he's thinking not long-term. He's just in the moment because that's how it's been for Esau. I mean, if you look at a character comparison here, you know, Esau's the kind of person who got all the awards in high school, who had all the good looks, who, who it just worked out for. He didn't really have to think long-term. It just worked out. So yeah, I'm going to get the soup. That's what I want. Jacob's the guy that's playing 3D chess. It hasn't worked out for him the same. 
he thinks that if I'm going to get what's mine, I got to get ahead. I got to be better. And that's the game that he's playing. And so you see this comparison between Esau and Jacob and Jacob then now has to get his dad's blessing. That's the only way this like fully transfers. And so weirdly, again, it's the story. His dad's blind and he's got to go in and trick his dad and make his dad think he's Esau. So his dad will lay hands on him and give him, not lay hands like fight, but lay hands on him and give him the birthright and make him the one that is the most blessed or favored, that has the most. So Jacob goes in to trick his dad. He puts some hair in his body and you know makes himself probably smelly like an animal and goes in and his dad's like, how did you do this so quick? Because his dad had said, hey, y'all go, you know, hunt for something, bring it back, set it to Esau and I'm going to bless you. And Jacob tricks him. And the reason that Jacob knows about this is because his mom gave him the inside track information. Hey, this is what Esau is supposed to go do. You, you, you beat him. You go get some game and I, I'm going to help you out here. And, and then you go in there and you get this blessing from dad. And so Jacob goes in there. And so not only is he grabbed after his brother's heel and he's grabbed the birthright from his brother. Now he's tricking and deceiving his dad and he's grasping and grabbing after the birthright from his father. His dad blesses him. So now he's got it, right? Everything's going to work out because if you deceive and grasp after and grab after, it's going to happen. You're going to be okay. Well, no. His mom comes to him. He's like, okay, your brother's going to kill you. I don't want you to get a woman from here in this area anyway. Again, it's a different culture uh, in the way that they thought about marriage, but we're still the same too because she's racist. So Jacob's now got to go and he's got to run and he's going to go run away to her family, his mom's family, to find a wife. To settle down. Now, we have this weird interlude in the story right here. And I want to just pause real quick because he's going there and he's in a place that would be like a wilderness. There's nothing there. He has a dream. And the dream, he sees a ladder that's like taking angels from heaven to earth. You've heard of this story, Jacob's Ladder. Now, why is this dream happening here? And what's this dream about? No, again, for them, the dream meant something. It was signifying something. And for him, it was like, whoa, God is in this place and I didn't know it. God is in this place and I didn't know it. The story picks back up and we're going to come back to this story of Jacob's Ladder in a minute. But the bigger story picks up and he goes to his uncle's place. And while he's working for his uncle... He's got his eye on a woman that he wants to marry because this is Jacob. Jacob always thinks the next thing I grab after is going to fix me. It's going to make me whole. It's going to make me better. I'm going to get the birthright. I'm going to get the blessing from my dad and and Esau. Oh, here's this woman. I'm going to have this relationship with her. That's going to fix me. I'm going to have a a transcendent sexual experience. You know, I'm going to have a transcendent relationship, whatever it is. And this is going to be the thing that I really need. And so he works for seven years for the uncle. And again, it's not about the number. It's about what the number implies. Like, finally, Jacob's done enough. Finally, he's done enough and it's going to work out. So he's going to marry this woman that he wanted to marry. And the uncle tricks Jacob and actually gives him, and the way their customs work, you know, sneaker in the tent at night when the marriage is going to be consummated. He gives her his daughter, who's considered, as the story would record it, less attractive. Not attractive, maybe. This is hard. This is a harsh story because she matters too. Her story matters too. But don't think about these as like real people who are, you know, 
or the, that some kind of like sacred or deity or gods are just playing chess with their lives. Instead, you got to think about how this story would have had uh, this dramatic effect as it was told around the fire over and over times, you know, thousands of times, whatever. So Jacob figures out he's been tricked. See, the deceiver has been tricked. He's tricked and to get where he is, and now he's been tricked. But he doesn't really try to fight this battle uh, very long, obviously, because he agrees to work another seven years. Finally, what I'm going to do is enough to be with this other woman. Now, you got to think about what it's like to be the less wanted woman, the not wanted woman, whatever. There's so much here. And the theme that you see over and over and over is for all of these characters, when this goes like I want it to, I'll be whole. When this happens like I want it to, I'll be okay. When my circumstances deliver me what I want, I'll be at peace. I can finally go. (sighs) So Jacob works for the uncle and he's married again. He's got this second wife and you find that he's, he's good at what he does. He he's in the business of animal husbandry. Uh, he's growing his herds and his herds are growing and it's creating this jealousy with his uncle. And he knows this is going to be a problem. So Jacob has, you know, grabbed after this blessing. He's grabbed after getting his relationships dialed in. He's grabbed after achievement, climbing the ladder getting getting all the professional accolades and then this jealousy's developing and he's in, I got to go he wouldn't just go he's built his whole life but something's in his mind and heart that if he stays he's going to lose what he has and he's got to go risk heading back home where he's going to be around his brother so he heads out to go home and going home, he's afraid, obviously, of meeting his brother because my brother is going to kill me. I stole from him. Look at what I did to him. And, and Jacob, being an amazing leader, not cowardly at all, sends gifts ahead to try to bribe his brother. And then, in an amazing moment of bravery, he sends his wives ahead. You see this guy? He's always trying to play chess. He's always trying to get ahead. It's always about what he's got to get. He's willing to sacrifice the other players on the board to win his position. But what he hasn't thought through is by sending all that ahead, he now has nothing. He's at a place where, for the metaphor of this story, there's nothing he can hold on to. All of his deceiving, now it's just emptiness. So he's grabbing after a heel and he's grabbing after a blessing from his brother and a blessing from his dad. I got to get what's mine. I got to get these this, these wives and this family and it's going to fix everything. i to get the achievement. Now I've got nothing. And what happens? It's at this riverbank, at this riverbank that the, the fulcrum moment of this story occurs. The wildest part of this story occurs. The most amazing part of this story occurs. We find that he wrestles a character and in wrestling this character, he's wrestling and he's, and he's basically grabbing this character and saying, you will bless me. And the character says, what is your name? And he says it. I'm Jacob. That's my name. I'm Jacob. He says, you're not Jacob. He asks him his name and he says, you're not Jacob. You're Israel. This character that he's wrestling has the audacity to rename Jacob. How could that be? Well, you get the inference from this story that he's wrestling God at the riverbank because the character says, you've wrestled both man and God and overcome. Now, there's so much to unpack here. 
for a moment. Let's just dive deep because this is how you understand what's happening. See, for so many people, they've never graduated beyond fighting against life. They think life is their enemy. Like that's the beginning stage of no wisdom. Life is my enemy. I don't, I don't really live with wisdom when I fight against my circumstances. And that's what Jacob is doing because there's always a lack he's deceiving to try to get what he needs. And then the second stage is not life is my enemy, but you are my enemy. This is where you localize it into somebody. So, so it's not that life is my enemy, but that guy at work is my enemy or, or this person that I've been married to for 10 years. And now I have this, you know, bitterness against because they're not who they, you know, could be that would make me fulfilled and happy. Because you're always thinking about your expectations. What happened for Jacob is life is my enemy. And I got to get what's mine. And now Esau is my enemy. And, you know, my uncle is my enemy. Very few people make it to this third stage. And this is where Jacob is right here. God is my enemy. See, what happens in the third stage is you, you understand that the sacred or you perceive the sacred is your enemy, or you could think about your worldview. Some of you that are listening to this project, you understand, you know, there's there's not a, a religion or anything I'm trying to push on here. I'm just trying to help you to understand how humans grow and develop and the wisdom of the stories that we've had for thousands of years and what they offer us. And so maybe for you, it's just to understand that, you know, in stage three, you're, the worldview is your enemy. You're pushing up against the box of your worldview and you don't realize it, but you're fighting against it. But for most of human history, they have conceived of a, a, a sacred or gods or a god. And I want you to understand that, like, that's a big part of this story. And s- some of the episodes we're going to look at where we look at some stuff from the New Testament, because the context of this story is is 40 Bible stories, or the context of this project, we're going to look at some stuff from the New Testament. And you're going to see that, like, that was a big shift that happened. It's like, oh, my gosh, God is a man to me. Fundamentalist people in religions create an image of the sacred in their own shame that believe, you know, the God, gods are against them, that God is my enemy. God is out to get me. And this is what Jacob is fighting. He's fighting God. He's wrestling God. That's the wild part about our transformation. I mean, we move from life is my enemy to you are my enemy. And then we start to fight against the very fiber and fabric of our worldview, whatever that is. And until we fight against the fiber and fabric of our worldview, we've oftentimes just run away from it and chosen a reactive worldview that eventually will leave us disillusioned. Jacob's life isn't working out like he thought, but he still, even in that moment, got the tenacity to fight God. Isn't that weird? I mean, if this story were created by a PR group that was fundamentalist in whatever religion it would be, it would not encourage you to fight God. But this story actually encourages you to fight God, to wrestle God, to, to get it out because it's already in there. And it doesn't mean you just like take a styrofoam bat in some kind of low-level therapy approach and that you're going to find health by just raging against a couch pillow as you take this styrofoam bat and swing at it and yell at it and get all this anger out. That's not the point at all. The point is that you, in the middle of it not working out, hold on to this belief and this fire and this passion that says, I know that it can be better than it is right now. The challenge of this story is 
that it doesn't get better by your circumstances changing. The whole broken trajectory of Jacob's life is to think, when I get the circumstances dialed in like I want, the right family situation, the right achievements, the right blessings as he thought about it, then it's all going to be better. But instead what he learned is the blessing isn't the circumstances. The blessing is an internal shift. It's about identity. It's about a new name. You're not Jacob the deceiver. You're Israel the blessed prince. In other words, Jacob, everything that you've been striving for and fighting for and wrestling for and now wrestling me for your whole life, what's driven you, this like needle or pin or ice pick in your heart that you wake up and you're terrified and you got to deceive to get your way, it's already yours. It's already yours. Go back to PC episode three. That was the big idea there. It's all already yours. And what's happening for Jacob is he's experiencing this on the riverbank. See, what happens in the wilderness, in the wilderness, it's the deprivation. It's, it's that everything that you thought would deliver something beautiful, that would give you a new identity, that at the core of who you are, everything would shift and you wouldn't have to, for Jacob's story, deceive to get your way. Everything would shift and, and, and you would feel a wholeness, a peace, a completeness. The lie is that it's all going to make you better. The wilderness is the deprivation to help you understand in the emptiness of having nothing in your hands, just like what happened for Jacob, you find what is really going on, what's really happening there. I, I want you to think about Jacob's life in four phases because I, I want you to think about where your life is and what phase you might be in. Phase one is where you're just building your illusion that, that I'm going to give enough effort and energy to engineering my life to have the right circumstances in my roles and my relationships that I'll finally be whole. People can live their whole lives and never leave phase one. I honestly don't understand why life works the way that it does, that some people get the gift of going through experiences where they are led into these wilderness moments and these wilderness moments reveal fear. They reveal struggle. And, and you can tell when somebody's in phase one, building their illusion. They're building who they are around their roles and their relationships. They don't know who they are apart from those. Maybe some of you listening to this are, are in a phase two, and you're just running in fear. There's some kind of circumstance that has a terrifying reality for you where you feel like, the worst things you could have imagined. I'm not talking about the people you love or, or, or these health experiences that come out of nowhere. I'm just talking about no matter how much effort you put into some of your circumstances, you can't engineer the life that you want. That's what I'm talking about. We'll spend some other episodes on these other things. But, but for this episode, when, when you can't engineer those circumstances and, and you're, that ice picks in your heart and you're running in fear, some of you are in, in phase two. Some of you are in phase three where you're wrestling God and, and, and you're wrestling your worldview and you're wrestling the sacred. What happens if you make it out of phase three? How do you make it out of phase three? How do you know if you're in phase three and what comes after that phase four? Well, that's where I want to hang with you for a moment. The way that you know you're in phase three is you feel this desperation of everything that you're doing isn't working and it's causing you to question what you believe about life. 
You know, there's a popular way of talking about life right now. We call it game theory, you know, and, and the game that you're playing, it just isn't working. And, and you've got to transcend that game. You've got to learn a different set of rules. And this is where you could move backward. You, you could move backward and become a worse version of yourself. How do you move forward and become a better version of yourself? It's because you learn to understand that I have an identity that's apart from what I go through in my circumstances. That's why I would beware of any transformational process, any teaching on how a person grows and develops, any psychological process, any spiritual teacher that, that would tell you that you can go from, you know, fullness of circumstance to emptiness of circumstance to full identity, to knowing who you are within. Because really there's something right in between there. It's not just emptiness of circumstance. It's emptiness of identity. That, that you hold this perception of who you are that's so tightly wrapped around your circumstances. And only when you let go of all of that can you find who you really are. This is what the great stories have taught us. I've referenced it in different places, but I am just profoundly moved even if there's flaws in the stories, and even if you're not a Star Wars fan, by the most recent one, how Ray Skywalker went from Ray the Scavenger to the emptiness of the battle in the Sith throne room to becoming the identity she chose, which was Ray Skywalker. <laughs> See, you get to choose your identity, and it's really powerful when you understand that logic and rationality are the pattern interrupt to the reactive patterns of your life to the ways that you prove or hide. But what happens after that logic and rationality isn't just a left brain dominance where you try to calculate your way into the life that you want. It's when you open up the imagination. It's the right brain getting one second ahead of the left brain. It's where you wrestle God. Now, practically, how does this happen? How do, at a street level do we do that? It's where you take yourself mentally and emotionally into the wilderness in your mind. Imagine losing it all. Take everything that you identify with and you build who you are around and, and take it away in your mind and heart. Diminish it. Imagine this. Because the imagination is where all of this can happen in such a transformative way. This is how you get to phase four where you know the blessing. It's the shift of identity. And what happens in phase four? Well, as Jacob wrestles with God, God touches his hip and his hip is broken. There's actually a practice now in, in um, the way that Jews enjoy, uh, you know, the different ways they practice with food and, and not eating the hip. And I can't remember it all right now, but I'm just saying to you, the significance of this was practiced by them because they recognized how important this is in the story that yes, Jacob was broken and he got a new identity, but he walked with a limp because that limp was a reminder of what he had come through and what he had been through because all of us can lose our way. All of us can start to, you know, as we progress in advance and find, you know, a more whole path, get off that path again. And there's something about being with people who have stopped trying to build their illusion, who have come to a place where they're not running in fear anymore from their circumstances. They've wrestled God. And some of you, you've, you've wrestled God because your experiences have taken you through it. Some of you can get wise from this story and you don't have to go through the desolation of your circumstances and the wilderness because you can take your imagination and imagine losing it all.
But you get to this fourth place where you understand with brokenness, I walk with a limp. You know, my story in this, uh, 12 years ago, never paid a bill late and went through this moment where I was a couple of weeks from really losing everything. I mean, literally, we could have been out on the street. I saw a guy who was pushing his belongings in a cart that I could have judged. And I was like, oh my gosh, I could be that guy in a couple of weeks. And in my own life, I've found that I've had a, about four times where I've had some really deep wrestling matches. And it's not just in one experience, but it's usually played out over time. And I leave changed by it. There's a profound mark on my life from it. I walk with a, a limp, if you will. Wherever you find yourself in these phases, if, if you're at a place where you're building an illusion, and this story can be a, a warning story to you, or maybe you're running in your circumstances, or maybe you're pushing up against the edge of your worldview, it, it'll get worse before it gets better until you can come to the point that you go, okay, there's so much I can't control. You can't force a flower to bloom, but I can cooperate with what is happening in me in this situation. That, that as everything I would build my life is getting pried out of my hands, that's when I find who I really am. That it's at the river that all the change occurs. As I was working on today's episode, a couple of mornings ago, some friends messaged me that they were listening to a song uh, by a group that I enjoy, Mad Season, a song called River of Deceit. And that song they were listening to, I guess it made me, it made them think of me. And it is at the River of Deceit where we wash away all the BS, all the ways that our ego has built an identity around what we do in our relationships. And your ego isn't the enemy, but your ego your brain is a spin zone that will take all the narrative of your life and try to make life your enemy. It'll try to make your circumstances your enemy. It'll try to make your worldview or the sacred your enemy. But you do not progress to the depth of maturity until you understand you are your own worst enemy. And in the river, we wash away all the BS. We wash away all the deceit. And we hear who we are. We hear the identity. That's why in episode seven, it was at the river that the baptism occurred. That's the significance of this story. So if you find yourself in a wrestling match, you're fighting for your life. Keep fighting. Grab a hold of the blessing. Practically, what does this look like for you? It means you hold something in your heart about who you are. And your circumstances don't define you. You're more than those. You hold something in your heart about your identity, regardless of what's happening in your relationships. And that you don't let shame and the vulnerability of your circumstances dictate who you are. But you say, hey, even though right now my circumstances might be telling me that I need to do better, I need to perform better, that I'm not doing enough, and, and all of those can be true, I am still enough. I am enough in my identity, even if... My circumstances don't say it. And when I know that in my identity, then I don't have to be afraid of engaging the mission and moving forward and learning from real results that are difficult to look at and staring them in the face. May we be the kind of people who don't give up, who keep wrestling. Peace.
Hey, thank you for being here and listening to this episode. Please feel free to rate and share the podcast with others. More importantly, I want to invite you to come to SightShift.com, S-I-G-H-T Shift.com. There, I'm obsessively focused on helping people with three problems. Number one, how to work on their worldview and make their own meaning. Number two, how to find their place in the world and move with a laser-focused mission. And number three, transcend status games and build the healthy community they want to be a part of. Through our platform of content, certified coaches, and community, we are transformational guides to help you find your wisdom. Join us at SightShift, S-I-G-H-T, Shift.com.